I'm just saying, if you were going to make up a joke about a dumb episode of Star Trek, the thing that you would make up would probably be, yeah, there's one episode where they fight a giant space amoeba. (laughs) And then we got it. We really got it. It's this episode right here. Which is to say, I didn't hate this episode. I mean, I'm not saying I loved it, but I didn't hate it either. Coming off of last week's episode, I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit like, whew, this is going to get rough. But, (laughs) luckily, luckily, I like this episode. There's a lot to it and a lot of fun stuff to talk about. So, can't wait to talk about the immunity syndrome. And as always, we'll be talking about him with my brother, Ken, coming to us from Houston. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They are way wide open. Not always in this episode. They, they, they have a lot of problems with communications in this episode. But uh, for us, they are wide open, and we're talking. My name's Matt, and I'm coming to you from Austin. The Immunity Syndrome, a giant space amoeba, attacks the Enterprise. Craziness. Give me a little quick rundown of what you thought of this episode before we deep dive into it. So, I think the main problem is that it's got, like, a goofy uh, problem to solve, right, in the the space amoeba. But that would be easy to rework, right? You change Uh a little dialogue, you change a little visuals. The characterization that you get, especially between our big three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, is very good. This is one Mm -hmm. of the most, uh, you know, acidic... Uh, episodes between Spock and McCoy. They are really going at each other in this episode. And, you know, Kirk has to occupy that role of mediating between them. He wants both of them. He needs both of them. He likes both of them. Uh, But they are totally at each other in this episode. Uh, You know, so that's good stuff. You get some, you know, good drama there. And... You know, I, I think that the way they go about their problem solving is interesting and engaging, right? So as long as you're not going, as long as you're not, as long as you're able to ignore the fact that they're dealing with a giant space amoeba, yeah, then it's a really good episode. If well, you know, you're, the, if right. you're mostly just watching and looking at that space amoeba, going, "What the hell?" <laughs> that, that's an obstacle. So look away. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting is that there's also a really interesting idea about it of like a uh, it being a virus that's like, you know, created itself in the galaxy. That's kind of a neat idea that they don't really do enough with. I think you play on that a little more and it becomes less of a space amoeba and more of like this thing that 
was created out of, you know, you could have even made it like a, a, I mean, obviously it wasn't as big a deal in the 60s, but you could have made it, you know, even something about like global warming or, you know, something like that. It's about like, well, we just threw all our junk out into space and look what happened, you know, or it was, it couldn't have even been us. It could have been another planet or a series of planets or a whole system, you know, they were just tossing their garbage into space and look what happened, you know, as an idea that it could have been that or something. Uh, as it is, like again, it's a fine episode. Uh, not in the top ten by any means, but also right, right, not right. in the bottom, you know, you know, ten either. So, well, let's get to some uh, quick behind the scenes stuff before we jump into this episode because uh, I wrote a lot of notes. So let's get to them. I, it was uh, early on, just before this season started, that unfortunately William Shatner's marriage of ten years kind of fell apart. So. He's got a lot of that that he's dealing with in behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> there's an episode, or there's an episode. There's an article that is uh, written that uh, says that it, they call it an inside source. But just listening to the way that it's written, you could probably tell it's DeForest Kelly because this is what he says. Lately, our conference table has become group therapy time with Bill airing his problems and Leonard giving, giving advice. The table was Bill's idea originally. We asked that it be set up in a place where uh, we'd meet first thing in the morning for coffee and talk about script notes. We'd rehearse uh, there before going in front of the camera. And if there's a point of disagreement involving the script or anything else to do with the show, we just hash it out right there at the table. It's been great. And it's given us a camaraderie not usually found in a series with so many regulars. But as I said, lately, Bill and Len spend a lot of time at the table with their heads close together. We all know about Bill's problems at home that he doesn't discuss them with, uh, the same way he does with Len. So pretty much you can say oh, that's DeForest Kelly. I mean, who else knows that is as chummy with those guys on set as they are? So there's an article in Popular Science, too, before uh, in December of 67 that year. It says that uh, the article reported that the U.S. Navy had recently sent a group to study the layout of the Enterprise's command bridge, saying that it was functional and efficient and served as a model for a new communication center that they were designing. <laughs> so that's neat. Again, you know, we talked about what NASA was doing uh, thanks to Star Trek. Well, here's what the Navy this time is doing because of uh, Star Trek. So, you know, there's a, there's a, like, a question of, like, how, how hard is Star Trek in, in terms of science, right? Right. And in one interpretation, it can't be hard science at all because it takes place too far in the future. Yeah. And transporters and warp drive and phasers isn't based on real science. Right. right? Which makes it soft. On the other hand, it takes place far in the future and takes its, ser its science seriously, right? Now, the, the problem, like, with the space amoeba isn't that it's necessarily bad science, other than, uh, you know, maybe our metaphor amoeba is a bad one, right? But that's, right. you know... Anytime you deal with a metaphor, you're going to run into problems. What they've encountered is a, you know, a life form. And uh, in general, the ship does one of the things that is defining for 
a hard whatever it is, right? So, like, if you look at magic and you look at the difference between hard and soft magic in fantasy settings, hard magic has rules. They're reliable, they impose costs, and these involve trade-offs that characters have to make, whereas soft magic, it just it works the way it needs to for the story. The story is driving the show, and the magic just does whatever it needs to do. And then when characters don't use that magic thing in the next episode, it's just because the story didn't call for it, not because it wouldn't have been useful. Whereas in, you know, a hard setting, the rules always exist, and you don't go, well, on this episode, the transporter works this way, but on this other episode, the transporter works that way. So lots of Star Trek's limits are imposed by the imagined science of 300 years in the future, right? So we're having problems where our, our lithium circuits are going out, or, <laughs> you know... This, in this episode, the creature is draining the energy. It seems to have a kind of an anti-function. Uh, you know, they you know, realize that more power this way is bad, but going the other way maybe is good. And maybe going in reverse you know, helps them, whereas going forward is a problem. And There's a lot of limits in Star Trek, right? So in that sense, it's hard. Right, hard science. Oh, nice. Okay. So uh, jumping into the writing of this episode, we got a guy whose name is Robert Saberoff. He was a uh, short story writer before he got into uh, TV writing, and then he wrote some movies. So, of course, you know, this is the kind of person uh, that Gene Roddenberry would want on his team, right? He wants somebody who kind of knows what they're doing, and he's a sci-fi guy. So he's like, hey, let's call up this guy. Saberoff uh, was quoted as saying he had been keeping an eye on Star Trek. You had to watch a lot of episodes of Star Trek to write for it. You had to know how these characters talked and reacted, right? We, we've talked about that so many times before. Once he felt familiar with the show, then, he then uh, called Gene Kuhn. And Gene Kuhn was basically like, hey, our budget's tight. Uh, we don't have a lot of money for effects. We don't have a lot of money for guest stars. So write me a story that wouldn't require a guest star. Like, just give me something. So, of course, he uh, went to, uh, you know, his old biology uh, teachings from when he was young and envisioned a monster that would be a single-celled organism. So in the first outline, it wasn't McCoy who uh, competes with Spock for the assignment on the shuttlecraft. It was this doctor named Dr. Loretta Myers. Uh, quote uh, from the outline, Loretta believes that the alien body is a giant virus spawned by spontaneous generation in a force field and a sea of hydrogen atoms. Oh, see, there we go. We get a little background on the virus in this one. But a virus can only function inside a living cell. Kirk is stunned by the concept that the universe itself is a cell, the solar system, star clusters, and even galaxies being only a bundle of greater matter arranged towards the construction of a superorganism. Uh, they reflect that it would indeed be ironic if the ultimate function and historical purpose of man's evolution was to serve the function of antibodies in the universe, a line of defense against viral bodies seeking to make the universe sneeze. <laughs> NBC preferred that uh, the theoretical notions of this type not be bantered about on primetime entertainment broadcasts. The part of the... Uh, part of the... Mm, why can't I say that? Part of the irony is... 
if the function if the ultimate function and historical purpose of man's evolution were to serve the function of antibodies to the universe oh shit needless to say that all got cut out let me just put it that way obviously that doesn't show up in the script we want and that was actually something i wanted after watching it when i took these notes you know a couple weeks ago i was like Oh, yeah, see, that'd be perfect. And then totally forgot about it in the watching of it. But that would be fantastic if we got a little more background. But, of course, you can understand why NBC in the 60s would want not want to uh, knock off the, the regular God idea uh, like they have so often. Oh, I thought it was more uh, that it was like straight evolution versus, um, you know, a created universe. Right. Oh, yeah. I thought, more specifically. I thought the objection was more that way than... Well, it's, you know, just more science-y versus more gaudy. I don't know. <laughs> more gaudy. That's always uh, a... Like a... So, like one of the... As I mentioned, I think, way back in season one at some point, Star Trek is an Enlightenment document, right? Uh-huh. And one of the themes of the Enlightenment is that everything has a natural explanation. Earthquake of Lisbon? That's not God punishing the people of Lisbon or Portugal for, you know, some sins. That's a natural explanation. Now, they didn't know what it was because they didn't have plate tectonics until after World War II. But the idea was it's, it's explainable naturally, and everything ultimately will be explainable naturally. And so Star Trek, naturally, tries to explain things in terms of natural explanations rather than supernatural explanations. In fact, it often likes to debunk supernatural explanations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those two things don't necessarily have to go together, although they do conveniently fit nicely together. Mm-hmm. You could have a Star Trek that's entirely naturalistic without being hostile to supernaturalism but star trek tends to be a little bit of both and i think it's because it's fundamentally an enlightenment document sounds about right so of course robert justman reads this first uh outline and he doesn't like it he says i anticipate a very talky screenplay and a general lack of action and conflict i cannot see a story that is evidently quite clear to you he's talking to gene coon who of course Loved the intellectual aspects that uh, Immunity Syndrome offered. You are the producer, and you make more money than I do, says Robert Justman. Therefore, you must be right. However, I still have the bathroom in my office, and you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Right. DC Fontana writes, it is esoteric, but not a Star Trek adventure. There's too much talk and discussion delineated and hardly any action. This is dull. NBC will say it's too cerebral, too eternal, and not what they bought as a series. They would probably be right, says DC Fontana. Bakun liked this fantastic voyage type uh, idea for Star Trek and appreciated the subtle elements hidden within the story, says Cashman. Saberoff goes on to say, the writer, When you don't have a guest star or an antagonist that, you, that can be characterized, you must construct conflict within your ensemble. I got that with the rivalry between Spock and McCoy for the privilege of entering this creature. Kirk has to choose between his two friends, which gives him the emotional dilemma. 
More tension was created by having the crews slowly dying as Kirk and the bridge and his bridge personnel, pumped full of stimulants, hang on by a thread. Saberoff credited Kuhn for helping steer his story toward the conflict that would eventually keep it interesting despite the economy used in sets and cast. Kuhn, says Saberoff, was very under-remembered man who was one of the major creative forces in Star Trek. Well, of course, we talk about him all the time. We love, we love Gene Kuhn. Ironically, by the time the first draft script arrived on September 8th, Kuhn was transferring the script development duties to, uh, to outside the initial NBC order of 16, and of course they did get picked up, and the immunity syndrome uh, became one of those that he passed on to Lucas. On September 14th, DCP... Blah, 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 blah. On September 14th, DC Fontana directs a, a memo to Lucas saying, In general, I have mixed feelings regarding this script. I think it can be very exciting, but I feel a lack of complete characterization of our leads and poor usage of them. In all, I feel Bob's script has missed, was missed in many areas uh, for character development. We must use more visual and go with more people involved. Which, of course, is exactly what Lucas does, and he leads us, leads us right to the script that we know and love today. When I arrived, everybody, <laughs> you're going to enjoy this, but it's going to be sad for us later, too. When I arrived, says Lucas, Meredith Lucas, everybody had dictating machines and would go write long communications, critiques, and suggestions on the script uh, and the script that was working. These were sometimes helpful, but also time-consuming in the practice of gathering everybody's opinion. Taking the time was very considerable. Everybody dictated. Secretaries were tied up in the typing of the mem memos. I often preferred phone calls. That would said, uh, this wasn't good, or we can't afford this. So I discontinued my use of this machine, and of course, so did everyone else. So uh, sadly, we're going to be losing many of the memos that we would, uh, but handily for them and making things go faster for them, they now started using the telephone. Crazy, what an invention. You know, in some ways, we, of course, returned to the world of memos in office mm -hmm. emails. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I think it's odd that people, like desks away from me will send me emails rather than just going you know hey <laughs> whatever you know but they want to document it that we talked about this that's creates a nice, yeah but so i mean and there are times when you want to do that and then there are times yeah. where you just want to be like hey have you sent that thing out yet okay you know did you order those pens yeah <laughs> So uh, Joseph Pedney returns to direct this episode, which is good news, and part of the reason this one turned out to be so good. The sad news is this also turned out to be Pedney's last episode that he directed. Is that just a coincidence, or was there... Oh, we'll get into it more here in just a second. So along with the uh, last-minute rewrites that we had going on, uh, bad weather was happening where George Takai was filming the Green Berets. So uh, Lieutenant Kyle was moved from the transporter room up and took the helm in place of Sulu there. You know, Sulu's been gone a long time. He's been gone many months. Yes, he for has. sure. Yeah. I, I, I feel like a modern TV show would not let a character that central to the show be gone for that long. They'd say, no, you can't do this other thing. But I wonder if the people making the show thought, well, really, it's about Kirk. Or Kirk McCoy and Spock. Right. And these other characters, Mr. Scott, Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, well, they may as well be Lieutenant Kyle. 
for for all we care. So <laughs> right. yeah, he can he can yeah whatever. Go ahead, make your well, movie. I also think if I remember right from when he left, the part of the reason they let him do it was because they weren't even sure they were going to get picked up for the full season. Right. So they didn't want him like missing a like solid job to be like you know. And also it was only it wasn't supposed to be this long, you know. Uh, right. Still stuck out in, I think they filmed it in Georgia or something. So he's still stuck way out in the boonies and he's like, ah, weather's bad. I can't go. You know, I, today, if a Star Trek show did something like that, and it would be cool to let them, right? Let right. an actor go off and have a, an opportunity like that. To basically, when he comes back, especially if the movie got delayed and he was gone for more episodes than you thought, you know, suddenly explain where he went. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, so how was it on the on the uh, Lexington? Oh, it was great. You know, I did this and I did that, and you know, I got to do this thing, and oh, you know, really cool. And like for a couple of episodes, he brings up the Lexington. Well, you know, on the Lexington, uh-huh. we used you know, uh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We used carbon nanotubes. <laughs> Not these crazy small ones like you guys have. That's right. <laughs> we had the updated stuff. <laughs> so, you know, you could you could make it feel like he actually was on a different assignment doing something, you know, particular and has now come back to his regular assignment. Rather than just like Rusulu. Oh yeah, he's on the night watch, I guess. He's you know <laughs> <laughs> They put him on the wall, we'll never see him again. He's trying <laughs> Trying to get his lieutenant commander certification by. Oh, see, I instantly went to Game of Thrones. That was yeah, my yeah. bad. Uh-huh. I spent the night watch on the ship. <laughs> uh, That's a different night shift. I, yeah, sorry, my bad. <laughs> I was thinking uh, more like uh, Crusher and Troy in the episode right. where Troy's like. Boy, it's cool that you get to command the bridge sometimes. Well, you know, I kept my command certification active, and so once in a while I have to do a rotation. Well, I'd like to get my command certification. Well, <laughs> go for it. But you got to tell Jordy he's got to die. <laughs> Spoilers for a million years from now. Um, so, Which, John Richardson. Turns out oh, to be really handy because sometimes. Spock and McCoy are the guys volunteering to go into the shuttlecraft, and you've got to decide who's going to die. Right. So uh, John Winston, Lieutenant Kyle, was, uh, you know, mostly stuck down in the transporter room, but got to be on the bridge this time. He'd say, uh, they did put me on the bridge once or twice, and I got a good look at how they managed the madness of that short six-day schedule. But that was Shatner. I have great admiration for him because he could pick up a page of dialogue, and that was it. It got done. He'd look at it, and then he'd do it. And then he'd do it right. And then on to the next page. Except Very the excellent. Except he calls Lieutenant Kyle Lieutenant Cowell. <laughs> yeah, well, it's close <laughs> enough. It's a K. This is, of course, one of the things that reminds us, you know, you know our dad and Captain Kirk, is this particular naming <laughs> problem. Is that right, Mark? Yes. <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> uh so we get towards uh so they're filming and they get to the uh the scene where they're shooting the 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 final like fly away uh it 
in the original script, all they could think of was to, you know, have Kirk tell Chekhov to lay in a course for Starbase 6. But uh, both Pedney and Shatner felt like we need to really, like, punch this up a little bit. So Kirk then repeats his line from the beginning of the story, creating this nice little bookend about looking forward to uh, resting on some lovely planet, during which Pedney aimed the shot at a uh, short skirt yeoman. <laughs> Shatner said, I'm looking forward to a nice period of rest and relaxation on some lovely planet. <laughs> you know, uh, you look at, at, and I've made this argument again before, but we'll bring it up again. The right. reputation that Kirk has as a chaser of skirts really right? doesn't, really doesn't like bear up to the watching. Uh, except for here. <laughs> well, and it's not really like the sense that that's what like he was gonna. I'm planning to chase this yeoman, right? We, the audience, are imparting that, right? Or the director and Shatner. <laughs> it certainly feels like from Shatner's read on that, that uh, that's some more of that uh, awesome 60s <laughs> machoism. Gene Roddenberry's yeah. sexual awakening. Why did Joseph Pivney leave? Well, here we go. This is his 14th, by the way, episode. And his final one, obviously. When Gene Kuhn left the show, he says... Much of the discipline had gone. From the time that I made Arena to the time that I did my last show, there was a hell of a difference. The actors were already ingrained in behavior patterns, which didn't permit new inventiveness, which was, as they felt, opposed to their character. That was the beginning of the problem. Bill wouldn't do certain scenes because Kirk wouldn't do that. Leonard certainly felt that way, and very strongly, because his character was so deeply ingrained that he knew precisely how Spock would behave in a certain setting. This attitude on their part was in was right in certain respects, with the actor protecting himself, but wrong in the fact that their minds were closed to new ideas. Now, I don't bend with that kind of stuff. The director is the director. You want to be the director? Go be a director, he says. But when I am the director and, and you're the actor, you make the greatest contribution you can, but I make the choices. I can't enjoy working on Star Trek anymore. The whole the show's whole character was changed for me. Nimoy, of course, disagreed with Pivney, saying, "I've always had very, I've always felt very strongly that the actor is the protector of the character. The character is stuck with the actor who plays him. It's sort of a father-son relationship. The actor is the keeper of the character in terms of developing the character and in terms of the continuity and credibility of the character. The writers come and go, the producers come and go, and the directors come and go. Those revolving door jobs. It's up to the actor to keep the character protected. I think we also get a sense that early on, TV directors were not as weak as they are today. Yeah. Well, I think also... I mean, obviously, you know, with the I, with the coming forward of the of method acting, you know, the whole Brando uh, uh, yeah. actor studio thing, you get you get these kinds of actors who are like, well, I know what's best for my character. I've done the work with my character. I know where he was born. I know how he grew up, you know. And you get probably somebody like Pedney, who you know was a director in the '40s and the '50s, right? right? So he's dealing with actors who are like, you know, Cary Grant, who aren't, you know, very different from, you know, scene to scene to, you know, movie to movie. You know, you could look at the, you know, some of, some of those older actors in 10 years 
and you know you're not seeing a big difference. You know, Bing's not different in every movie. Danny Kaye isn't very different in every movie, which is fine. I love all those movies, and I'd watch right. them over and over again, and have. But it's a very different style of acting. You have know. you? Uh, I don't know if I've ever told you about this. It's, it's hilarious. But, you know, Wired does has experts who ex- are like explainers, and one of them is a dialect coach, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, you've uh, you played me one of those podcasts, yeah. Yeah, so he's, one of the hilarious ones, and maybe this is the one I showed you, was uh, John Wayne is Genghis Khan. <laughs> and of course, his delivery is John Wayne, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's bring the hordes and put them over the hill. And, and <laughs> the dialect coach is just like, how the hell did this happen? And goes <laughs> right on to the next one. That was his, you know, his comment was on that order. <laughs> and that was the thing, right? Is that nobody thought in, you know, 1965 or whenever Genghis Khan was made, we, we really ought to ask uh, John Wayne to perhaps do a proper Mongolian accent or, uh, you know, maybe hit those vowels or consonants in a different way or no, just, you know, just have John Wayne deliver it the old John Wayne way. (laughs) So funny. So uh, of course Shatner has something to say about this as well, but it's very interesting because I feel like his take is slightly different, which is, he says, I think that there's a great deal of my own personality in the character. If only because with 79 shows, day after day, week after week, year after year, the fatigue is such that you can only try to be as honest with yourself as possible. Fatigue wipes away any subterfuge that you might be able to use as an actor in character roles or trying to delineate something that might not be entirely you. You're so tired that it can only be you. So I think that in Kirk, there's a great deal of me. So he's basically like, and I've heard this, you know, said by other people who do, you know, uh, who do shows who, you know, it's like you have so there's only so much time you have in a day. You can only do so much acting. You can only spend so much time, you know, on any given day because, you know, everything moves so quick on TV show that you can't really act. You just got to be you and, you know, hope that you and the character get along because it's going to be you day after day after day, week after week. So obviously that's a very different take than what, uh, what old Leonard Nimoy said. Right. Who I think feels very, uh, it, Leonard's feels very like method actor, you know, part of the 60s acting revolution. And definitely so. um, Shatner's feels a little more old school. So uh, Gene Roddenberry said of this episode, getting that episode on, on the network TV was a small miracle because NBC was not wanting to challenge anyone's ideas concerning the origin of life or the purpose of man. Some. Uh, some things were lost with that story as a result. Robert Justman said, it was always a difficult task in deciding which episodes would not uh, repeat, you know, during the summer when the show wasn't uh, doing its, re- uh, you know, wasn't on, but uh, wasn't airing new episodes. Remember Summers? Remember, uh, side note, remember Summers? Summers used to be like entire reruns. That was yeah. all, all TV was. Now it's just like, no, we've got this miniseries we're going to show for eight weeks, and you're going to love it. It's going to be a brand new show. No repeats of shows that you loved. Uh, Robert Justman goes on to say, there was no question that this episode would make the cut due to the, photograph- due to the photographic effects, if for no other reason. In fact, there may have been no other reason. That may have been reason enough. 
And, uh, okay, well, that's it. That's all I got behind the scenes on that one. A lot of interesting stuff we discussed. So, hey, let's, uh... Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Captain's log. Stardate 4307.1. So, uh, they're on their way to shore leave. Kirk says uh, that he's looking forward to taking some time on some lovely planet. Well, you know, one of the things I like about this episode is this whole idea of them being tired, right? Because they're already coming off of, like, some long, awful, we don't know which one. Uh, We can assume maybe the last one. But they're coming off of some very long, tiring mission. So we're not only dealing with the fact that, like, everybody's just tired. You know, the whole, the whole crew is tired but then we're also dealing with this like we're dying because this you know thing is sucking out our lives so all of that is making it makes for a very interesting i don't know if i'd call it a b story right it's not quite a b story but it's something that is definitely underlining and layering right this story yeah so it's lurking behind all that exhaustion and the need for the stimulants and the and how are the stimulants affecting you and I just need seven more minutes. You're gonna pop! Right. Suddenly, a chord hits down, and we see Spock react. Seconds before, we find out that the Intrepid was manned only by Vulcans, and now they have all died, according to Spock. Somehow he felt their deaths, even that far away. How do you feel about that whole idea in that story, of this story? You know, I, I, I may have brought up at some other point, that there's a uh, you know connection to what we see at the beginning of Discovery, right? We get this long distance, you know, connection between Michael Burnham and Sarek, and this is an example of original series using this kind of long distance, you know, connection. And of course, what he gets is vague, right? Mm-hmm. He's not he's not in communication with anyone in particular. He just realizes that 400 Vulcans died all at once. Right. Now, of course, they had just received a communication that they had lost contact with the Intrepid. So their minds were on the Intrepid, right? They were thinking, hey, what's up with the Intrepid? And then he gets the the thing. So, I mean, it seems... Uh, Seems fine. Well, it's funny because you made the joke, and I remember where you got it from, of the, uh, suddenly there was uh, 400 Vulcans screaming. Yeah, I'll, 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 read, I'll read the bit. Right. So it's uh, here at the TV Tropes. In their recap, Spock feel, uh, after they lose contact with the Intrepid, Spock feels a great disturbance in the Force, as if 400 Vulcans suddenly cried out in terror, and then were suddenly silenced. Right. So, it's... Like, I, I'm, I'm fine with it, but I'm not fine with it. Like, uh-huh. I don't know, it's, it's right on the edge for me, right? Right. Because on the one hand, it does feel very Force. You know, it does feel like the Force, like, calling out to them. But again, also like you said, there you know we know there is an element of telepathy. We saw in Discovery that they can apparently, if one's Katra is inside the other, they can talk talk across millions. And I also think it's interesting 
which we get into later in this episode, that the astonishment that they had, they couldn't figure out a way out of the, the puzzle. Right. Right. They, logic wasn't enough in this case to, to save them. So, I don't know, I sort of feel like layering all of those things makes it work. But it also feels very weird, too. I don't know. I, like I said, I'm, I'm, on, I, I'm, like, I'm fine with it, because there's obviously a lot about Vulcan mysticism that we really don't know. Right, And right. how it works, so... Ah. I do think that, like, to go back to something I said earlier in the episode about, you know, using the idea of strong in in the sense that there are rules, mm -hmm. and this does feel like it's a little bit rule free. This is pretty soft, right? Yeah, it's it's there because this it helps the story. It provides a little narrative context. You know, there were other ways they could have done that. A good way would have been a communication. Right. right. And we could have met, uh, let's see, what's his name here? Captain, I don't know, it sounds like Cybok. Uh, or Satak. S-A-T-A-K, yeah. So his name is in the script, but it doesn't make it into the, into the final version. Mm -hmm. Spoken. You know, they could have had a, and we've seen these kinds of, of, uh, Communications in Star Trek. You know, to any ship within range, this is the USS Intrepid. We are undergoing tremendous, you know, uh, energy drain. Not sure if you can read us. You know, if you can render assistance, we're at coordinates. He makes up some numbers, right? You know, right. please, uh, you know, render assistance. Uh, power down to 4%. You know, need immediate assistance. And then it goes dark. Right, yeah, and, and we would have that sense of oh my god, you know, and then you get the order, you, uh, Enterprise, you're the closest ship. Gotta go. You know, gotta go. <laughs> yep. Yep. And Spock could do something like, if they were able to maintain four percent, well, they'll, you know, life support alone would use consume that in thirty minutes. Yeah. How long will it take us to get there, Mister Chekhov? Mm -hmm. An hour and ten minutes. Dun dun dun. You know that would have that would have also solved the, the drama problems, right? Right. But instead, they introduced this element that, uh, and I think it is a kind of mysticism, right? And they never yeah. give up on that Vulcan mysticism. Spock is always pulling weird stuff out of his hat, right? And yeah. then, of course, you know, Sarek will continue to do it in uh, Discovery and. I don't think there's any point at which the Vulcans. I think if we if, if we get so far as to be watching Voyager, I think we'll we'll see Vulcans pull stuff out of their hat. Yeah. If we go back and watch Enterprise, you know, we'll see the same thing. Actually, I think there's a lot of Vulcans, in part because it's a slightly different earlier Vulcan. Yeah. I think that the same thing is going on there. So. You know what else I was thinking is a, a communications buoy or a yeah. log buoy. You know, right, how right. they like, well, let's send off the log and then we'll, uh, you know, or something like that. <clears throat> yep. And also, sorry. And also, since we've touched on, on Discovery and, uh, and, uh, and Vulcan specifically, 
you sent me an interesting text the other day, which was, uh, where was Cybok during all of all of Discovery? Which is a fine question and probably something we shouldn't debate at all. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone yeah. would be like, yeah, where was Cybok? Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, it's an interesting We get a new question, sister, right? but we can't deal with a brother? Yeah, of course, he could have been like too little in the in the kid version, you know, where they're yeah. all kids, right? To like be meaningful. But he also could have been kind of a problem where then, you know, because he was into mysticism or whatever. And so Spock was like, oh, I'm totally messed up. You know, do I yeah. go with dad's, you know, traditional Vulcanist? mom's humanness cyborg's got this whole other things going on i got michael burnham as a sister i so can break that <laughs> oh my gosh <coughs> see yeah we shouldn't even bring it up it's, uh, it's a bad. uh so as you said starbase sis starbase sis whoa okay starbase six Tells the Enterprise to divert and rescue the Intrepid. Shots of the worn-out crew disheartened by the news. I like that, too. Like, they're really playing it up. The solar system is dead, says Chekhov, as we go to commercial. Credits. We come back, and my favorite tinkly music is playing. Uh, Spock's checkout by Bones is, is done, and uh, Bones gives him the okay. What, what happened? Asked Bones. I sensed them die. I could hear the death scream of 400 Vulcans. Spock here then slams humans having the easier capacity to deal with many deaths as opposed to one. Ah, oh, yeah. God, did you hear about that? Like 600 people died in that plane crash. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Hey, by the way, do you... Yeah. By the way, did uh, did you hear about Joe? What? What happened to Joe? Oh yeah, he died of a heart attack. He died? Oh my gosh! You know what I mean? It's like Not that... Joe. <laughs> exactly. I was like, holy cow! Spock really hits it on the head here. That's crazy. Oh yeah, another uh, two hundred people died in a hurricane last week. By the way, did you hear about Martha in that car accident? Not Martha. No. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Spock asks for a little, like, uh, well, hey, but what about your neighbor? And uh, Spock turns back around and says, may have made your history a little less bloody. Wow, all right, geez, thanks, Spock. Back on the bridge, Spock returns. We quickly find ourselves face-to-face with the black amoeba. It's like a hole in space. Suddenly, uh, this feedback happens from the telemetry probe, but it contained no information. Then Uhura faints, and we hear from McCoy that she's not the only one. Everyone, uh, two-thirds of the ship has fainted. By the way, did you see, uh, this happened last episode, too, which I forgot to mention. But McCoy's got a new shirt. It's all, like, shiny and stuff. It's not your regular blue shirt. It's like a shiny blue smock or something. It's got, like, a medical shirt. Yeah. Kirk goes to Spock looking for answers, but Spock has none. Uh, now I'm going to read this as it's written. Because uh, I'm going to talk about it all afterwards. So uh, Spock says, no analysis due to insufficient information. No speculation? No information? Nothing? I've asked you three times for information, and you've been unable to supply it. Insufficient data is not sufficient, Mr. Spock. You're the science officer. You're supposed to have sufficient data for me at all times. 
I am aware of that, Captain. But the computer has no information on this type of phenomenon. It is beyond our experience, and the new information is not yet significant. I thought it was, like, there's this, this bit that you just read, and there's one or two other times where Spock's defense is, well, the computer doesn't have anything, right? And I'm like, where's all that years of scientific training that you're bringing to bear? Okay, so the computer has no, you know, it's, it's like, I go to my computer. I have a computer, right? I can ask my computer things. Yes. And, like, it doesn't have stuff about unknown things. What yes. will Trump tweet tomorrow? What, <laughs> will, what will Russia, you know, yeah, the computer doesn't know. But I, as a reasonable person who might be following the affairs of the world, I might be able to guess, you know, what will happen with Brexit? What will Putin do about Ukraine? What will Trump tweet about? I can make reasonable guesses, uh-huh. right? Even though the computer might go, insufficient data. Spot, come on. Yeah. Give me something. Well, see, so, okay. This is the second thing I was going to say, but I'll say it now. Uh, you know, from a plotting perspective, this just shows how way unusual this situation is, right? Like, right. the computers can't even think that it exists. It's like, I, I mean, I don't even know what to do with this information you're giving me. Spock neither, apparently, has no idea what to do with this information either. In the, uh, has no idea either. So, of course, I bring up now another thing, which is that it's interesting that in our world of AI, right, which right. isn't perfect, we've seen, oh, yeah. like, sitcoms or, you know, like, written by, by AI that are not funny. Uh, somebody recently did, a, like, a Game of Thrones season eight. Like, it fed all these scripts into season eight of Game of Thrones. And what came out was so, like, ridiculous. You're like, okay, so AI isn't perfect. I get it. But... Um, you know, in theory, the computer should be able to extrapolate some kind of idea, much like you were saying about Spock, right? As a reasonable person, they should be able to come up with an idea. And it's funny because we've seen, agreed, they're the next generation, but they did it a lot in that on that show, right? Where it'd be like, all right, I'm going to give you this piece of information and this piece of information. Now extrapolate what you think might happen here. And the computer will go like, based on every, everything that you've told me, I think it's this. Bring, you know, and it gives you the answer. So it's interesting that neither of these things happen. So, of course, there's the party game, 20 questions, right? Right. And one of the early questions you want to ask in 20 questions is the animal, mineral, vegetable question, right? You want to figure out. And once you realize it's alive, it seems very Star Trek to ask, can we communicate with it, right? And so you could have had, you know, a piece of futility in which Spock's, well, possibly is alive, Captain. Well, perhaps we can communicate with it. Uh, How how would we do that? Uh, Look into it, you know, Spock. Try to figure out, you know, well, I've noticed, you know, these readings seem to fluctuate in a way that could possibly indicate... You know, if not communication, then maybe sensory, you know, input or something. You know, we'll, let's just send some pulses at this this frequency using these energy parameters, and then nothing yeah. happens, and then they move on to whatever they were going to move on to before they decided the computer could give them nothing. Yes. That's what would have happened, exactly. Now, anyway, course, just, part of oh, their sorry. problem is that we weren't there to give them script advice. That's right, exactly. <laughs> 
so anyway, uh, all of that information to say that we're set up for an interesting ride here for the rest of the, the rest of this thing, right? And it all comes out of that one little thing there. So uh, he and Spock attempt to figure out uh, what it's not, hoping that will help. It doesn't. So Kirk then decides to probe the thing, because, like, what else are you going to do? The, the feedback starts again. And then uh, Chekhov announces, Captain, the stars are gone! Well, that was Scotty. I don't know what I'm doing. That was a horrible <laughs> Russian. Anyway, moving on. So uh, Kirk turns to Spock and says, What's happened? Spock's like, I don't know. He's, and Kirk says, Then kindly tell me what happened to the stars! Which I thought was great. Bones arrives uh, with stimulants to give everyone on the bridge crew save Spock notice. Spock's yeah. Vulcan uh, thing is handling it well. Uh, metabolism. Kind of, I kind the of noise. Know, I kind of feel like this is some... Uh, and of course, we imitated the Germans in so many ways after World War II, right? Tanks, okay. you know, bringing the German scientists home. One of the things that the Germans did is they would give their soldiers amphetamines to maintain the Blitzkrieg, right? The Blitzkrieg just wasn't powered by airplanes and tanks, motors, but also by amphetamines. Huh. And, uh, you know, you, you hear about this stuff in Vietnam, right? That uh, there'd be a lot of uppers given to the troops to keep them uh, combat ready. And I kind of feel like this is of that great things we learned from the Nazis. <laughs> Give everyone stimulants. <laughs> That's funny. So uh, there's a friend of mine who's a, uh, uh, he's a narcoleptic. Uh-huh. And so uh, one of the drugs he's using is something that they created for, obviously, for the, uh, for the military, which would, would help people who had to stay up for like 24 or 48 hours to keep, to stay, not only stay awake without falling asleep, but also to keep mentally like aware and with it, yeah. you know, because sometimes obviously that's the problem with amphetamines, right? Is they're just like yeah, yeah. everything's buzzing and they're like. <laughs> so anyway, that's interesting. Uh, of course, it also means that he has to take something to go to sleep, too. So. Uh, so uh, the noise that we heard, Spock tells us, comes from crossing the boundary layer. What boundary layer? From where we were to where we are. Which is a, are a, you... a useless kind of answer. That's right. Even Kirk says, are you trying to be funny, Mr. Spock? It wouldn't occur to me. <laughs> uh, so we find out that our mechanical and living energy is incompatible with what's going on in this negative space. Kirk asks for opinion. Bones encourages survival. Oh, thanks, Bones. That's a good idea. But then Kirk makes a speech saying surviving is not our mission. We gotta, you know, find out what's going on here. We gotta stop it if we can. Bones then goes down to sick bay and makes the startling conclusion that backs up Spock's analysis. We're dying down here, he says. We're all dying. Dun dun dun. Commercial. Back at it, we can see uh, Kirk in his green shirt again, which, by the way, I said a few weeks ago was supposed to have been his last. I'm not quite sure why it's back. Uh, the Cashman book said it was supposed to be gone forever, but here it is again, so I don't know what's going Laundry. on. Laundry. Laundry, I guess. Uh, I, I know that in its initial use, it was supposed to help cover uh, Shatner's increasing bulge in the middle here that was being caused by not eating right and not having time to uh, work out and also with all of the stuff that was going on at home. So maybe that's why its return was inevitable. I don't know. We also know that they were having problems with the yellow shirts, that they were shrinking in the uh, in, in the, the wash. In the wash, yes, which wasn't helping the bulge 
problem either. So they're all know, laundry on. problems. That's right. Captain's log, start date four three oh eight point eight. Basically, a day has passed. Suddenly, we're being pulled forward despite having reverse engines on. So Spock says maybe it would be better to go into forward as opposed to reverse. Scott advises it, but Kirk tells him, uh, "Hey, look at this way. If we're wrong, then Spock will, or if he's wrong, Spock will never live it down. It'll be great." Uh, besides, we've only got a few minutes left to do it anyway. Says Kirk forgot to say. I should have said that. Anyway, it ends up working, and everyone's life functions stabilized for now. Then we get a briefing room scene where Bones reiterates the fact that we're all dying. Spock tells us that the energy drain is probably the same thing that drained everything from the solar system. Mm, so it must have been hungry. Kirk deduces that maybe that they're stuck in a shield or something that's around something else. Kirk now advocates getting out. He suggests pouring all of the power into the engines for a quick burst that might snap them out of the negative zone. The meeting adjourns, but Spock stays behind, suggesting that the Intrepidive may have tried all of these things and still wound up dead. Spock tells us that they may never have known that they were being killed. Kirk asks for further explanation. No Vulcan can conceive of a conqueror. It's been so long since the Vulcans have been conquered, he says. I knew the ship died because of what I sensed. What did you sense? asks Kirk. A touch of death, says Spock. And it's because of what I felt. Well, then what did you feel? Asks Kirk. Astonishment, says Spock. I can't believe we died. How did we not figure this out? The Vulcans are thinking, we're smarter than this, aren't we? So they try to get out, but it doesn't work. And whatever at the uh, center, Spock tells us, has found them. And it's the giant amoeba. They send in the probe and find out that it is for real an actual giant amoeba. We go to commercial. We're back at it. A, we get this great bone Spock Kirk scene. They know that they need to send in a shuttlecraft. One man, a science specialist, and both Bones and Spock volunteer. Kirk says, he's not taking volunteers. I am a command pilot. Which makes you indispensable, says Spock. It has to be one of us. But both Bone and Spock make their, plead their case. Plead their case? Does Spock plead his case? I don't know if I'd say that. But Kirk decides he's going to have to make the decision and takes a few minutes to do so. We then go into uh, Kirk's cabin. Here he reiterates the plot for all of our viewers who have turned in at the half hour point. Which of my friends do I condemn to death? He asks. He then calls them in. He chooses Spock to do so because he is the best qualified, but he does it in this completely like shitty way, right? He tells Scott like uh, to prepare the craft and that Bones will tell him what instrumentation he needs. And then he turns and says, I'm sorry, Spock. Bones gets all excited to collect his few things, but then he says, no, I'm sorry to Spock. It's going to be you. You're the one who's probably going to die. Sorry about it, buddy. I, uh, sorry about the confusion in my telling you who it was going to be. Some sense of drama. Poor Bones. So then we get this tense Spock and Bones scene that you were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, we talked about in Babel how they weren't even sure that they were friends. But, you know, they sure do seem to spend a lot of time together. <laughs> but this scene is intense. Uh, Spock starts the conversation by calling himself the superior choice. Bones accuses him of not letting him take any of the credit for this. It's not a competition, says Spock. Grant me my own dignity. 
Vulcan dignity. How can I grant you something that I don't even understand? Spock says, then use one of your superstitions and grant me luck. Which Bones doesn't even do until after Spock is gone. The door's closed behind him. Spock never even gets to hear it. What is the point, Bones, I ask you? <laughs> so he can but, feel bad about it later, I guess. Yeah, so, I mean, they do like each other. It's just in this reluctant, I can't admit it way, right? Right, totally. I th- and I think it's because, as I have, again, argued probably plenty in the first season, it's a personality conflict, right? Right. And yeah. I see this all the time in, at work, is people are fighting over nothing. You just don't like the way someone else's problem-solving or planning or execution manifests right. itself. And so it's like, you're a screw-up, you're doing it wrong, you know, you're incompetent, I don't like you. And, you know, you're like, well, left alone this person's successful, you're successful, so neither one of you is actually incompetent. Uh, you just have a different set of skills, and you don't like looking at the other guy doing his thing. And that's what's going on here. So they respect right. each other, but the other guy's functioning just pisses the other guy off. <laughs> They're always arguing with each other. And, of course, Kirk, who probably is disturbed by neither one of the other guys functioning, appreciates both of them. Is like, this is actually kind of tedious, guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll make the decision. You just let me figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the command guy. It's my job. I had to do it when I was <laughs> trying to become a commander. I just sent somebody to their death. <laughs> Some guy named Jordy. I didn't know who that was. <laughs> 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 Which, you know, made it easy. <laughs> yeah. So the shuttlecraft is launched. It enters the borderlands, and most of the energy is drained from the ship. Spock then delivers the bombshell. All its energy is saved up for reproductive purposes. Dun, dun, dun. Which in lore terms, by the way, also means why it hasn't eaten its way through the galaxy like the Doomsday Machine did or some of the other ones that we have had that are similar. Uh, he also goes on to say that Bones would not have survived the travel through the Order's Land. Through the Borderlands. Spock then... Shoo! (laughs) Exactly. Spock then tries to communicate how to destroy the organism, but uh, the static makes it unreadable as we go to commercial. Oh, no! We come back at it. Now McCoy is worried about Spock. But then they are, as they're talking about it, they realize that it's like a virus, this thing. A virus in the galaxy. Kirk decides that the Enterprise should be the antibodies. He then falters for a second and McCoy scans him and tells him that he should stay off his feet for a few minutes. I don't have a few minutes. I don't have a few minutes, he says. Maybe none of us do. And I can't go to sleep because you hot me up on stimulants. <laughs> That's right. On the bridge, uh... They cut the shields and allow themselves to get sucked into the body of the amoeba. They then decide to plant some antimatter into a probe and send it into the nucleus. At point-blank range, nonetheless, because the eddies and the currents could knock it off by thousands of kilometers. Wait a minute. Did he just say kilometers? Is that what he said? But in the previous scene, he said that the thing was 11,000 miles long. So are they using miles, or are they using kilometers? Make up your mind! Guess they can't decide on which system to use, huh? 
It's like us and the British. We're going to keep using our own, and we're, you're going to deal. On the shuttlecraft, Spock gives his own personal log. He gives his highest testimonial to the crew of the Enterprise, the finest ship in the fleet, he says. Kirk then gives his captain's log, giving special citation to Bones, Spock, or, yeah, Bones, Scott, Chekhov, Uhura, and his highest citation to Spock. And the no name of Kyle. He also gets his special citation because Sulu isn't there. They're going to drop the bomb and with a seven-minute fuse on it and then use impulse engines to get the hell out of there, if possible. Then they see the shuttlecraft and attempts to use the tractor beam on it. Scott, blah, blah, blah. Spock encourages them not to, but McCoy, who has finally come around on Spock again, tells him to shut up and we're going to do it. Thank you, Captain McCoy, says Spock. Tension mounts. Will they get free? The power levels die with 57 seconds before they were supposed to. Then the ship shakes, and it shudders. And surely enough, they are free. And no sign of the space amoeba. They made it. Then we find out that the hangar deck is depressurizing, and that Spock has landed. Now this, much like we have talked about before, is also to save money on uh, special effects. Kyle tells us that the ship is landing, that the hangar deck is depressurizing, because we don't want to show it, because that would cost way too much money. As it is, the uh, remastered version is only showing us shuttlecraft shots that we've seen before. So, Also, I wanted to do the comparison. I wanted to look on the Trekkie channel and see the comparison between this episode and the original episode to see how the special effects differ and how they hold up. But because they use so much of the episode almost 10 minutes worth in the thing, they can't show it on YouTube to people in America. So, sad times. No use on the Tricky channel. And then that's it. We have finished off this episode. Crazy. We talked for over an hour about it. I didn't think that that was going to happen, but sure <laughs> enough, it did. We had lots to say and lots of things to point out. So, very exciting. Next week, a piece of the action, right? That's right. Yes. So, we get some uh... gangsters. That's right. So this is a fun episode. In no way is this serious. But it, it's delightful. You get all of the humor that you get in a good, funny Trek episode. So you know, I would say in terms of humor, it's up there with Trials uh, with Tribbles. Uh-huh. Um, you do have a good um, you know, Kirk violating the Prime Directive kind of problem. Although Kirk's argument is already totally violated <laughs> <laughs> whoops so uh you know I, I can't make it worse let's see if i can make it better and of course right. you know spock and mccoy going <laughs> i'm not sure that's a good idea so you, you do get good uh trek ideology stuff and it's a uh -huh. funny episode so you know it's good solid trek but it's not in any way a serious episode but it's so much fun you should Definitely tune in next time and catch the yucks. I love it. We're laughing our way through the next episode. It's going to be good right. times. Can't wait. Well, there we go. Another fine episode of the show just wrapped up for you. As always, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin and from Planet Houston's my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you go. And we will see everybody next week. <laughs>